arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. In tonight's episode, Sakalatia takes center stage, even though he is physically back in Ohio. This is where his so-called transformation therapy is elevated to a heightened pitch where reality is skewed and transformed into a new reality. He knows who Catherine and Tucker are, as well as Roz, who has joined them in Plymouth. Also on the stage is Ritter himself, who flies back in a rage to Massachusetts. Dimitri's investigative team descends upon Plymouth with every intention of killing Catherine, Tucker, and Roz. Episode 4, The Butterfly and the Deadly Storm. The tornado is spinning down the road. Chapter 15. In minutes since the jet landed in Fort Myers, Dimitri had finalized another fundraising dinner. He gripped his phone, exhaled, and speed dialed Corey Pearson. The radar and light towers on the edge of the airport whipped by as the line rang. Pearson. Corey, it's Dimitri. What's the status? They broke away. Rizzo is in Plymouth. He hasn't a clue. Rizzo can only operate at a certain level, my friend. Dimitri sunk the edge of his clenched fist against his forehead. No argument here. I need you to track down Jenna and Tucker. We'll take it from here. Are you saying we will do the recon and let Rizzo and his people apprehend Jenna and Tucker? I'm rapidly losing confidence in Nick. I'll give you the intel on the two individuals. Then you can let me know what you want. Will do. Thanks, Corey. Dimitri's phone connected again, and this time Rizzo answered. Nick. Where are they, Nick? Dimitri, I had guys up and down I-90 and I-84. Save it, answered Dimitri, sipping a glass of scotch water and ice. The limo was now on the Florida interstate. What are you going to do, fire me? Dimitri swished the ice and let the scotch drain down his throat. Then he smiled. I'd kill you before I'd fire you. Alexi is in Ohio. I know, I know. I would think they would return to Ohio. Really? Replied Dimitri as the limo passed the palms and a cloverleaf. Over the years, I've tolerated and dismissed your inadequacies. But to be honest, your antics really don't matter. You were with us from the beginning. I was there for you, but you seem to have forgotten that. Dimitri rolled his eyes and took another sip. He shook his head and looked into the glass. We're in a different era now. Conrad's polling is very good. We took care of Jansen and Horowitz, said Rizzo in a shaky voice. Doesn't that mean anything to you, Dimitri? Dimitri clinked his glass on the limo table and grinned. We all have to do what we have to do. And you, my friend, had better find out exactly where Miss Jenner and her trucking cowboy are located. You will proceed to that location and kill them both. I want the bodies cremated. Then you'll drive to a location I give you once you have accomplished your duties. That's not much time. Get a good night's rest, Nick. You'll need it. Dimitri cut the line and lowered the window to get the night air inside. With a sly smile, he studied the shopping malls and the plazas. He should have fired Nick Rizzo years ago. Maybe Corey would take care of this mess. Once Jenner and Tucker were dead, Ritter would be well on his way to the top. 
with no one left to stop him. Tucker told her not to use the cell phone. Catherine leaned against the glazed brown tile near the rest stop payphone. She checked her gold watch as Roz's line rang. Roz here. Catherine slid up the wall. Roz, you're here. Thank God. We just landed at Logan Airport in Boston. I had a ticket on Roller Coaster Airlines. Catherine stared at the cloud-smeared sky. Roz, we have people after us, and I'm losing my mind, I swear. I saw Saka Latita here in Plymouth, but that's impossible. Oh, it's possible, Catherine Marie. Well, that's the least of our problems. What about your friend Stu and his DEA buddy? You want me to contact him? Tucker ordered at the counter inside. Yes, I do. Tell him the person we think we can identify is Nick Rizzo. He works for Ritter and his manager, Dimitri Maritokas. Wait, wait, I'm writing this down. Across the rest stop, Tucker turned with two styrofoam cups in his hand. I think you're stuck on Tucker. I am not stuck on Tucker. He's 15 years older than I am, she said softly as Tucker crossed the tile floor. Sometimes older is experienced, you know what I mean. Roz, just get your friend on this. She smiled as he handed her a warm cup of coffee. Thank you. Tucker just brought me some coffee. See, he's got the hots for you. Roz. I'm getting on the shuttle that drops people down this Route 3 at the park, not too far north of Plymouth. I appreciate you coming back here. You need my help to put Mr. Conrad Ritter behind bars. Catherine sipped the coffee. Ah, that tastes so good. Thanks, Tucker. No argument here, Roz. I'll call when I get to the park and ride. Thanks. Catch ya. Bye. She sipped on the coffee as they crossed the restaurant. Roz is making contact with a friend who does know somebody in the DEA. No kidding. We can use all the help we can get. He pulled out one of the light blue plastic chairs, and they sat at the circular table. God, we finally caught a break. Tucker straddled his chair across from her. Catherine sucked the warm coffee through the plastic cover opening. If something happens to one of us, I want justice for Shane and Billy. Well, me too. When I think of this pompous jackass, Ritter, stealing Bud Carrigan's hard-earned money, and then buying that radio station so he and Maritokas could leapfrog upward... I'm sure there's more dirt once I left Plymouth. No doubt. He nodded and took off the coffee lid. Then he drank half the cup. Tucker, how can you drink all that hot coffee all at once? I'm a guy with an iron pit for a stomach. I always have been. Does that iron pit want anything to eat? Well, I was hoping you'd be hungry, because I am. She stood. We haven't eaten all day. Trying to dodge Rizzo and his cutthroats. I'll treat. I ain't going to welch off a woman. She raised her brow and smiled. Anybody ever tell you you're a throwback? Tucker produced a sly grin as they crossed toward the food counter. What would you like with your coffee? I'll take a number three, she said, pointing at the ham and cheese special on the board. With fries or rice? asked the girl. Rice. Make it a double, but give me the fries, added Tucker over her shoulder. You don't like the rice, Tucker? I like rice just fine, but I'm in the mood for fries. She nodded and smiled. I see. Tucker squinted and he smacked down the $20 bill. The girl handed him change and they slid down the wood counter to the pickup window. Tucker leaned against the counter and faced the windows. She grinned as she poked his shoulder. Thank you. 
As his eyes panned outside, his smile dropped quickly. What is it? She asked and she started toward the windows. He blocked her advance. Turned back to the counter. Two cops and cars in the parking lot. That ain't good. They're looking for something. Could be nothing. Tucker pointed to the rear doors. The girl at the counter handed the food bags to him and he led Catherine out back. They opened the door. He poked his head around the corner and then took her hand. They moved between parked cars and under the light poles as they approached the cranberry van from the front. He opened the side door and guided Catherine inside. She leaned forward and they saw both black and white cruises in the side mirror. The cops were shining a spotlight into the other parked cars. Very strange, said Tucker as he climbed inside and started the van. Let's see what happens when they leave. She watched the mirror as the cruises converged midway on the side lot. How are you going to get us out of here without them seeing us? Silence again. He shifted the van into neutral, opened the driver's door, and mightily pushed the van toward the downward ramp. The van continued to roll forward toward the ramp. Tucker checked the mirror but never turned on the lights. When another car pulled up behind him, he'd started the engine. They accelerated toward the highway, and then Tucker flipped on the headlights and merged into highway traffic. What did we do wrong? It's Ritter and his slimy friends who are the murderers. I've always found when somebody's after you, you assume everyone is after you. He checked the side mirror. Here come our friends. What? Without flashing lights, both cruises started down toward the ramp. Tucker drove a few hundred yards and then down the next exit. To her left, WXBN's red antenna lights slowly blinked atop Pilgrim Hill overlooking the highway. Tucker ran the stop sign at the bottom of the ramp. The tires screeched and he swung up a hill across from the radio station. Straight ahead were the plaza's bright lights. Tucker veered to his right. Where are they? If they're after us, they'll radio ahead. By now they probably have my rig. Maybe your friend has some ideas. Dimitri dragged his ringing cell phone from his jacket pocket. Dimitri. It's Colin. We've ordered an all-points bulletin through our contacts in Massachusetts to all law enforcement agencies on Tucker and Jenner. By now, it's all in effect. Why Mass? We received a report from Ohio. One of our guys picked up info from Jenner's friend's phone, specifically stating that Jenner and Tucker are still in the Plymouth area. Well, that's uncanny. Then get him. They can't get very far now. Well, what about that friend from Ohio? She called a low-level operative on her phone. It doesn't mean anything. She's on the edge of all this. First things first. Agreed. Dimitri twisted his mouth. I've tried to reach Conrad four times on his cell and at the office. Do you people have any idea where he is? That's the other thing I wanted to tell you, Dimitri. He's called Nick Rizzo a number of times. For what? We can triangulate all his calls. I don't want him involved in any of this. Get back to me. He pushed the end button and again tried Ritter. This time he let the message play through. This is Conrad Ritter. Get back to me. The beep sounded. Conrad. I've called five times. Get back to me. And why have you been calling Nick Rizzo? He quickly exited his office and marched down the hall to Ritter's open office door. Grace, I still haven't been able to reach Conrad. The thin little brunette turned from her computer. Her blue eyes were moist. Perhaps he met someone, if you know what I mean. But he has a tight schedule this week. I don't need him going out on any binges with some bimbo. She continued to type, and Dimitri checked his watch back in the corridor. Then he placed a call to Alexei. Alexei, 
Do you know Conrad's been on the line to Nick Rizzo several times? No, I did not know that. Dimitri reached the silver-framed elevator. Call Rizzo. I want to know why Conrad called him. And ask him if he knows where Conrad went. I will. Call me. Chapter 17 Ritter extricated himself from the white stretch limo. He stepped in front of the Radisson's columns in the lobby south of Plymouth, Massachusetts. The old wayside had been replaced with a stony green three-story hotel on the beach. Nick Rizzo waddled in his black trench coat across the asphalt lot. Ritter hurried over to meet him. He stuttered as his forehead lines tightened up to his crew cut. Got big problems, Conrad. Big problems. I don't want to hear about any problems, Nick. This used to be the wayside. Well, you'd better listen about this one. Alexi just left me a message. Ritter buttoned up his cashmere coat and then swatted his hand through the air. Who gives a goddamn? I'm in charge here. You should let me handle this. Demetrius told me these two individuals are my problem. No, no, no. They threaten me personally. Somehow they know about my past. Rizzo clasped his pudgy hand around Ritter's thin bicep. Why risk your career by going after anyone? That's what we get frigging paid for. You shouldn't even be back here. If Dimitri wants... I really don't give a damn what Dimitri wants. Rizzo then put his arm fully around his shoulder, but Ritter pushed him away. No one threatens Conrad Ritter. No one stops Conrad Ritter. You should have known that from way back, Nick. This isn't some simple little radio station caper. We're not dealing with town folk here like we did 40 years ago. I am totally against your involvement back here. Get a room here at the Radisson, then we'll go out and find this Jenna and Tucker. Where's your vehicle? The expedition is damaged. We now have an Escalade. Ritter's cell phone sounded. He fumbled with the phone and finally pulled it from his pants pocket. Ritter? Dimitri spoke firmly and direct. Where the hell are you? Ritter said nothing for at least ten seconds. You let me worry about that. You stupid dumbass, what the hell do you think you're doing? Mind your own business, Dimitri. Where are you? I don't need to have you shaking me down. Ritter's dark eyes opened wide and he pinched the bridge of his nose. I'm going to have security on you 24-7. I don't think so. I'm in Plymouth, Dimitri, and I'm going after those bastards. You're running for governor of Florida, and you're leading a hit squad up there in Massachusetts? Ritter held out the phone and then barked at him. I am personally going to kill these sons of bitches and then fly back to Orlando, so Dimitri, screw you. He cut off the line, but it rang back almost immediately. You better answer it, said Rizzo. You don't understand, Nick. We're going to find Jenner and Tucker and do what we did to Billy and Shane. Tucker had parked the van in an extended rows of cars in a plaza by the highway. He checked his analog watch as he gripped the steering wheel. Are you sure she knows we're here? She was only up a few exits before she went to the rental car place. Catherine looked back to the car lights, continuously appearing over the highway bridge. Eventually, they'll find this van, Tucker. By then, we will have contacted Roz's DEA agent. She nodded, and then her cell phone rang. 
Roz's name flashed on the screen. It's her. Roz, where are you? Right here, kid. Catherine turned. Roz sat in a bright yellow Mustang. The side window went down and a broad smile filled her face. How do you like the machine? Can you handle it? <laughs> That's what they all ask, she said, and Tucker chuckled. What did Stu say? asked Catherine. Oh, he's out somewhere. I have two calls into him. We need to get to his contact fast, said the low-voiced Tucker. I can't see you, Tuck, but I can hear you. Let's get to a hotel and I'll try Stewie again. Tucker looked at Catherine. Just call me Tuck. Tucker stared out the window across the parking lot as Ross continued to eat the pizza he had ordered earlier. He paid cash for both motel rooms near the plaza off of Samoset Street. After midnight, Roz was assured that her government contact would call her right away. What do you think, Tucker? asked Catherine. I'd say we have a 24-hour max window here, people. That's okay. He turned and pulled out his tipperillos. I need a smoke. You haven't touched your pizza, Tuck, said Roz. Tucker grinned. She wants that pizza, Catherine. Can I? Go for it he said, and he opened the door. You want any pizza, Catherine Marie? She watched the door slowly close. No, I'm all set, Roz. Let me tell you something. That is one determined dude. Tucker? Catherine? Of course, right. Sorry, we're in this thing so deep, Roz. Well, I talked to Sacalatita yesterday afternoon. This whole thing is part of... Brahma's day. Brahma blends the soul of a particular body, and that's what's happening here. There is another nature, eternal and transcendental to the manifest and unmanifested matter. It's supreme, and it's never annihilated. Roz, what the hell are you talking about? You saw Sakalatita because he manifested himself on the same spiritual plane with Shane and Billy. I just think I'm plain nuts. He told me that eternal justice will transcend the mundane. That's what he said. I'm all for that. Maybe this DEA guy will take care of all of this. Roz thought as she looked out the door. Go out there with him, Catherine. He's your type. Well, he's not my type, Roz. We'll see, she said, stuffing another slice of pizza into her mouth. This is good. I never met a pizza I didn't fall in love with. Catherine, grinning, tightened the belt over her white sweater and pushed open the door. Tucker, Tipperillo in his right hand, stood at the end of the overhang and stared at the plaza parking lot. The cool breeze picked up and chilled through the sweater. He glanced at her over his shoulder. They descend upon that van, and then they're on to us. And they probably never think we'd be standing 300 yards from the van. You ever play poker, Catherine? He raised his left brow, and with a slight grin, he panned back toward the parking lot. At this hour, the van was the only vehicle in the lot. They can't connect the dots unless they've cross-checked Roz is renting the Mustang. That will give us a little time. Well, as soon as Stu's buddy calls Roz, we can move this thing forward. Tucker puffed on the tipperillo. I don't trust nobody. She folded her arms across her chest. Honestly, Tucker, you're the most cynical man I've ever met. I'm going back inside. Not cynical. I just play it smart. Catherine stretched in the bed as the brightening sun rays framed the drapes. In the next bed, Roz's gentle snoring brought a smile to her face. 
She crawled across the bed covers and dragged back the corner of the burgundy drapes. Tucker, in his denim jacket, became a mere silhouette in the spreading dawn glow. He smoked another tipperillo, with his foot propped up on the wooden side rail. She slid into her slippers and pulled her jacket off the chair. As Roz continued her snoring serenade, Catherine removed the brass chain and twisted the doorknob. The cold air jolted her. Tucker, as if he had an extra sense, turned slowly. He dropped the tipperillo stub to the concrete and squished it with his brown boot. Then he faced the plaza as Catherine approached. You haven't been out here all night, have you, Tucker? I've been out here since 3.30. Even the local cops haven't found the van. It's all by its lonesome in the parking lot. Till the store is open, that is. That surprise you? Nope. But what does surprise me is that old Stu's DEA guy never got back to us. I'm going to make the assumption that he simply bunked in for the night. We're going to head out of here if we haven't heard from him by 10. Orange sunlight surrounded the cranberry van parked next to a discount clothing store's front window. The supermarket's parking lot shadows extended to the far end of the plaza. Catherine smiled when the oversized Roz, in her pink nightgown at the door, blinked her droopy eyes. The cold did not seem to bother her. Catherine Marie! The DEA just called my cell. Tucker turned his ear like a hunting dog in the woods. Well, what did he say? He just asked if we could all get on a conference call with his supervisor in 15 minutes. Tucker squinted and then nodded. Let's do it, but we need to leave this motel, people. Why? asked Catherine. Intuition. Tucker pointed diagonally across the road to the orange and white donut shop sign near the highway ramp. Breakfast is on me. Roz dipped into the donut box. Catherine grabbed her wrist, shaking her aunt's sparkling diamond bracelet. Roz, how can you wear this thing in public? You worry too much! Tucker seemed concerned, but no longer looking at the plaza parking lot. His coffee steamed from the open cup on the window counter. What do you see there, Tuck? Not much. A man of many words, said Roz as she smiled at the waitress. I could use a hot chocolate. Small, medium, or large, asked the blonde. All of the above. Come on, sweetie, do I look like a small? Catherine grinned. Do I look like a medium? <laughs> Tucker stood upright and then leaned toward the window glass. What is it, Tucker? asked Catherine as she moved away from Roz. Across the street, five dark sedans had swooped into the motel parking lot. Half a dozen men with walkie-talkies staked out positions in the lot. Well, guess that answers our question, as they triangulated the cell call. Roz grabbed her hot chocolate and hurried over to Tucker and Catherine. I didn't even think of that. Call that one, Tucker. Tucker pointed across the street. Local police cars had blocked off the van and officers were all over the vehicle. Now they've called the Plymouth cops. That DEA contact was our last hope, said Catherine. Ross sipped on the drink. I'll be damned. Now what? asked Catherine. Tucker alternated glances between the motel and the plaza. If they found this motel, then they know about Ross's car. I say we get on a bus and head north, as far as we can go. Tucker reached for his coffee. He slowly sipped the liquid. Let's go. He just opened the door for Catherine and Roz when a black Escalade entered the motel lot. The pudgy man with a crew cut exited the driver's side. Nick Rizzo, said Catherine. Rizzo moved around the car. 
And then Conrad Ritter materialized in the back seat when the window zipped downward. Tucker grinned. And there he is, the big kahuna himself. Conrad Ritter, exclaimed Roz. They rushed along the cars to the Mustang. Tucker got behind the wheel as Catherine and Roz climbed in back. Catherine leaned forward as Tucker started the car. Why is he here? We're looking at a totally vindictive individual, said Tucker. He started the powerful car and peered over his shoulder as he backed up. Then he shifted and they moved ever so slowly toward the rear exit. Roz and Catherine turned in unison. Catherine leaned toward Tucker again. Rizzo, he's back in the Escalade. The tires screeched as Tucker whipped onto the side road. Then he accelerated under the highway bridge. Rizzo and Ritter trailed several hundred yards behind him. We are in major league trouble. He spun left and headed up a hill lined with towering monuments at the top. At the bottom of the hill, the Cadillac pursued them at high speed. Tucker turned right. Hold on! The Mustang went airborne for a few seconds and then down the next hill. Catherine's neck snapped against the vinyl seat as they hit the ground. She held on to Ross as Tucker accelerated through a neighborhood of three-decker apartments. Tucker negotiated the turns with the skill of a NASCAR driver and only bumped the sidewalk once, but the Escalade continued in pursuit. When he turned onto a forested dirt road, Roz covered her eyes and then looked through her fingers. The tree branches whipped against the windshield and the fenders. The Mustang's right front tire hit a pothole and the rear quarter fishtailed. Tucker fought to control the car. Come on, you horse! shouted Tucker, but the Mustang slid down the sandy embankment. The car tilted skyward and the rear wheels spun the dirt into the air. Everyone out! Tucker kicked the passenger door upward. Cold air burst inside the car. He rolled outside and extended his hand. Ross crawled under the dirt and leaves, followed by Catherine. Tucker extended his hands. They rounded the trunk into the thicket on the steep downhill grade. He repeatedly told them to go forward and not to look back no matter what happened. They were below a rocky ledge when the first shots rolled through the forest. Catherine thought she heard Ritter's distant voice. The ground leveled and houses were visible near a busy road a few hundred feet through the branches. The underbrush scraped her arms as they struggled toward the houses ahead. One shot, followed by a broken limb, emanated from the top of the wooded hill. But the second sharper crack produced a whooshing sound just above Catherine's head. Her stomach tingled as she prepared to be hit, but the shooting stopped. They ran across yellowed grass that bordered a greener backyard. Tucker stayed with them on the uneven asphalt driveway. Numerous cars passed at the street. Across the road! An old brick mill set back from the street had a narrow smokestack near a pudgy tower with arched windows. They held hands across the road, scrambling across the dried grass toward an aluminum frame glass door to the right. Tucker pulled back the door and they scooted inside. He leaned around the frame and checked outside as Catherine peered down a long brick-lined corridor with shops and just a trickle of customers. Her heart beat crazily. Roz, breathing heavily, gazed up at her. Ritter, he's out of his mind. A long-distance runner, I ain't. I assume, said Tucker, turning back, that they stopped that shooting, which means they're on their way down here. Roz looked down the corridor. Where do we go now? Tucker squinted. Tucker looked at Catherine's scraped arms. You all right, Catherine? 
Yeah, Rita just can't fly into town and blow us away. Here comes the Escalade. Tucker turned with Catherine as the black Cadillac skidded diagonally across the parking lot. They trotted along the cement near an old vinyl record store and several discount clothing establishments. Tucker glided like a guard blocking a defensive lineman and plowed Ross and Catherine into the record store. Surrounding speakers buzzed with Paul Simon's You Can Call Me Al as Catherine glanced over her shoulder. To her right, Ritter ascended a metal staircase and pointed a black handgun at her. Rizzo and another guy, also armed, followed behind. Tucker pushed Roz and Catherine to the floor. Ritter's wide face contorted into a wrinkled mass of hatred and disgust as he popped off several shots. Record display shattered and someone yelled from up front. Catherine, shielded by Tucker, clutched onto Roz. More bullets hit the wall and the floor. Keep on your bellies, yelled Tucker. We're going to crawl into that stockroom. It's our only option. As she wiggled on her stomach across the old wood floor, Rita shouted from behind. You should have minded your own business, you lousy bastards! Catherine thought they would all soon be dead. Tucker maneuvered them under a colored curtain into a low-lit, shelf-lined back room beyond. Then he secured the door. Bullets soon pierced the wood, leaving clean white grooves into the brown paint. He pulled Catherine and Roz along a white-painted brick wall. Two metal cage windows six feet up in the wall prevented any exit. Tucker's grimace only added to her fear. More bullets splintered the door. He shoved them down a dark and shelved area toward a bathroom. Standing to her left in a green and red robe, the white-haired Dr. Sacalatia opened his arms. Come with me, Sacalatia. They reached a solid white brick wall under a fluorescent light. Where? Where do you want us to go? There's no way out. This is a wall. The remaining wood from the door sounded like dice rolling onto the cement as chunks spun across the floor. You are no longer in danger, Mr. Tucker. What the hell is this? asked Tucker as he looked at Catherine. From up front, Ritter laughed as he stood in front of the shelves. You're all dead now! He raised his gun and Tucker shielded himself between Catherine, Roz, and Sacalatita. Ritter screamed something incoherent as he pulled the trigger. Sacalatia moved his arm upward and into the wall. His body half merged into the brick. Take my hand! Oh God Almighty! Sacalatia merged into the bricks. Roz opened her eyes wide and fell backward behind the wall. Tucker slipped his callous hand around Catherine's smaller hand. As they both leaped toward the bricks, turgid forces surrounded their bodies. You there, Tucker? We just went through a friggin' wall. Outside, dozens of shots ricocheted around the stockroom. Ritter screamed about letting them get away. Cowards! Cowards! They're all cowards! It's the transformation therapy, said Roz somewhere in the dark. I have summoned all the lost souls, said Sacalatita, now above them. Well, this is all happy horseshit, said Tucker. You are here, aren't you, Mr. Tucker? Variations of this therapy have occurred throughout history. I have researched a wide range of methods to contact the dead and transform time. We've got a guy out there trying to make us look like Swiss cheese. You risk being trapped, 
said Sakalatita. Physical reality can be transformed by the realm you are entering. Realm? Just get us out of this damn building, said Tucker. Sakalatita's voice reverberated in the dark. I am the facilitator. I am the catalyst. I summon those departed and those so dear. Then he chanted something in another language. Abadi, Abadi, Abadi. I can't move, said Catherine. Tucker's voice overrode Sakalatita's incomprehensible dialogue. I can't move either. That's enough, Sakalatita. Sakalatita then spoke in English. William, Ellis, and Shane Carrigan, your days walking upon this earth have long since passed. The suffering, the anguish of your lost lives. Abadi, Abadi, Abadi. Catherine's heart thumped and her eyes popped as if she were in a pressurized plane. Although she could not speak, she called out to Tucker in her thoughts. From behind the brick wall, her thoughts continuously receding as if she were on a fast-moving boat skipping across the water, drifted into an unreal, remote place. She fell forward like an elevator in freefall. As she gasped for breath, the high-pitched cacophony reached a crescendo, but instantly stopped. The darkness persisted when she opened her eyes and moved freely within the void. Time eluded her as she floated in total isolation. Again she closed her eyes and her body slowly tumbled like a spacecraft out of control. She longed for the touch of another human being. Loneliness inside this nothingness proved worse than death. Chapter 18 A thin neon-like white frame outlined the darkness. Catherine sat up. Something beyond the glowing outline produced a heavy thump-a-da-thump-a-da-thump-a-da-dump cadence. A burnt odor permeated the blackness. Is everybody here, Roz? No, I've gone shopping at the local clothing. Quiet, said Tucker. We don't want Ritter in here. Well, I, for one, am going to open whatever this light is, said Roz. Hold it, hold it, cautioned Tucker. I'm at the edge. Well, where is Sacalatita? Doctor, Dr. Sacalatita. Catherine held Tucker's forearm as he tensed his muscles around the light. They were drawn forward into warmer air, laden with the stuffiness of a spent wood fireplace interior. Silver rope spun forward from spools through slots and out again down the length of a voluminous room. Several young men with short, greaseback hair periodically checked the rope's progress. Tucker tilted his head and then Catherine turned toward Roz. A solid plaster wall stretched from several paned windows at the far end. Well, who the hell are you? asked an older guy with nubby gray hair and an unlit cigar in his mouth. Tucker ran his fingers along the darkened wood floorboards, and then he faced the man. Well, we got lost. Yeah, that right, you and two chickadees. Now get the hell out of here. I'd love to, guy, but how do we get out? He crunched the cigar between his yellow teeth and gray beer whiskers. Then he gestured with his thumb and raised his voice. The way you came in, now beat it. Tucker glanced at the plaster wall and motioned his head. Catherine and Roz followed him across the wood. He spoke over his shoulder. There's creosote on them boards. Watch your feet. The wood beams had a distinctive sweet odor with creosote heavy in the air. Outside the dirty pane windows, green foliage traced the parking lot. Oh, this is very strange, Tucker. Something is screwed up, added Tucker. Roz put her hands on her hips. 
I don't see the door. The bulky warehouse machinery extended to the far windows with no exterior door. Tucker's dumbfounded expression concerned Catherine. When he reached the windows, he stared outside. What the hell is going on here? Catherine joined him at the window. A smattering of old, heavy cars filled the parking lot. Tucker stroked his chin. Damn strange is what it is. Tucker studied the machinery and then spun around to the forward window. Let's get out of here. What are you thinking, Tucker? asked Catherine. I'm thinking that this is all bullshit. A little New England foliage? Look, Tuck, when we went inside that building, it was winter. They followed him down corrugated metal stairs to another wire mesh door. Oak trees smattered with a few orange and red leaves surrounded the parking lot. He pushed on the glass and moved onto the outside concrete stairs. In the lot, he stopped at each enormous car, some with rising tail fins. Then he ran his fingers along the fender of a white and blue Ford. I remember this car when I was a kid. It's a 1957 Ford Custom. Where are we? asked Catherine. Some kind of hypnotic trance or LSD. Tucker continued along the cars. He stopped at a red and white car with oodles of chrome and wide fenders. 1957 Chevy Bel Air. Plymouth Belvedere. Tucker turned as if he were a little kid let loose in the candy shop. See, they were launching rockets from Cape Canaveral, and they made them cars look like rockets. Then you do believe, don't you? asked Roz as she and Catherine joined him next to the red car with angled fins. What, in Santa Claus? asked Tucker, admiring the chrome bumpers. We did just enter that deserted mill, Tucker, Catherine said, removing her white coat. It had little retail shops, and now they're making rope inside. The cigar guy that just kicked us out was some kind of foreman. Ross held his shoulder. And we were in December, for Christmas sakes. Tucker squinted in the sunshine. Well, I'm just glad that madman Ritter didn't go through the wall. Plymouth, the 1950s. Catherine shook her head. But that's impossible. I was born in 1975. Roz raised her index finger into the air. 57 or maybe 58. What do you think, Tuck? Tucker gave her a cold stare and removed his tipperillos. He struck a match and puffed on the tobacco. Let's take a little walk. At the end of the half-paved parking lot near the street, Tucker jabbed his cell button a second time. Then he shook his head. Service is out. Oh, good luck getting a signal in the 50s. Tucker pressed his lips as he checked the street. This is ridiculous. In the distance, a blue ocean expanse formed through the maple leaves. Catherine shielded her eyes in the sunshine. Let's head downtown. Tucker waved his hand through the air as he stood at the curb. A blue and white car with white wall tires and a split windshield rounded the corner. He followed the car a few feet down the sidewalk. Then he turned back to Roz and Catherine. 1955 Ford. I think we've all been drugged by that quack. Sacalatina is not a quack, said Roz. Then where did he go? asked Tucker as they started down the cement sidewalk paralleling the trees along the road curve. An antique black car approached slowly. Well, Tucker, what is it? 1949 Chevy. Tucker pitched the tipperillo onto a sandy road shoulder. Okay, I'm convinced. And what, pray tell, changed your mind, Tuck? asked Roz. Tucker paused and furrowed his thick brows. 
There's no other explanation. Look, here comes a 53 Chevy. Obviously, we're in the 1950s, said Catherine, but when? Tucker focused down the road. The latest model of them cars in the parking lot was a 58. Dang, I don't even believe any of this. Catherine studied the strange spiked antenna attached with metal strapping to a ranch house's brick chimney. I think they can only get a few channels through those antennas. And Ritter, Ritter is here in Plymouth. The little bastard is as young as we are, said Roz. Tucker still looked unconvinced. Well, Ritter is a killer no matter what era he's in, and so is his buddy Meritokas. Are you sure? How, how old would he be? Maybe his early 20s, Tucker bit his lower lip. Damn. Maybe Shane and Billy are still alive, said Catherine. And Bud Kerrigan, said Roz. Tucker nodded and took out his wallet. I want to know the exact date. And how are we going to cut it back here, Tucker, with no money? Roz has the situation well in hand. Oh, yeah? How so, Roz? Asked Tucker, laughing as they continued toward town. Oh, ye of little faith. Tucker balanced his brown leather boot against the dock's long weathered rail. A sandy spit of land ringed the bay behind him. Catherine held his shoulder briefly. There was a portrait of President Eisenhower back in the restaurant where we split from Roz. I'm aware of that. Tucker tightened his lips and accentuated the lines down his cheeks. Interesting. Real interesting. And the calendar was indeed September 1958. I'm aware of that too. Well, Tucker, I don't understand any of this. I don't understand the dreams you and I had either. He gave her an imperceptible nod. I guess we need to dump our cell phones and our digital watches. I have an analog watch. Okay, Mr. Analog, how many minutes until we meet Roz at the Rock? He lifted his wrist and checked his gold watch. Fifteen minutes. I say we walk back along the waterfront. Roz said she would get us money, Tucker. I hope she's right. They approached a weathered gray clapboard building. She'll be there. I don't worry about that girl. Catherine continued with him around the building. Oversized cars were parked diagonal next to the waterfront shanty. Tucker opened a wood-framed screen door and motioned her inside. Steamy, fish-laden air surrounded them. White uniformed men worked frantically behind a tall counter as jazzy big band music from a brown Bakelite table radio reverberated around the room. Tucker rapped on the counter. Excuse me, can we use your phone? The little guy up front removed a cigarette from his mouth. Huh? Can we use your phone? Local? Yeah. Phone books under the phone. He pointed to a black rotary phone atop a stack of papers on the side desk under the window. Then he stared at Tucker's heavy suede coat. <laughs> you expecting cooler weather? Maybe. Tucker stepped around the counter and removed the little phone book and thumbed through the yellow pages. Catherine held the edge of the book. The phone number's there in three or four digits. He flipped back to the front cover. Phone book for Plymouth, March 1958. Tucker nodded and half-rolled his eyes as the fish cutter glanced at him. I'm aware of that, she said, completing his phrase. Tucker smiled as she turned the book cover. On the first page were dialing instructions. You can call the operator or just dial the local number. Hey, said Tucker, turning to the fish cutter. What's today's date? What kind of a question is that? He asked, the cigarette ash falling to the blue and white linoleum. 
I think it's a pretty easy question. Step closer. September 9th, oddball. Year? What are you, crazy man? This is 58. Thanks, pal. He continued cutting. Righto. Catherine dragged her finger down the page to Dan Jansen's name. Jansen, Daniel, 123 Sidlin Road. My God, I'm going to dial his number. Tucker tightened his brow. Dan Jansen, he'd be around 30 years old, Catherine. Catherine grasped the heavy black phone and a dial tone clicked. She spun each digit and let the dial retract. She giggled as the line rattled with unfamiliar noises but finally rang. It's ringing. Tucker rolled his eyes and mumbled something as he turned toward the harbor. This is just too weird. Hello? Answered a woman on the other end. A baby cried in the background. Yes, is uh, Dan there? Well, Danny gets off duty at 4.30. Who's calling, please? Catherine Jenner. I'm looking into Bud Carrigan's accident. Oh, poor Bud. Are you from the insurance company? She asked. No, I, I knew Bud. Well, like I say, Danny will be in after 4.30. This is a party line, so keep trying if you call back. Catherine bit her lower lip. I was wondering if we could come over when Danny gets home. Tucker raised his brows. Fact number one, Bud Kerrigan is dead. Yep. She set down the phone and whispered, I'm not sure about Shane and Billy. Maybe we can prevent them from being killed. Maybe that's what this is all about, Tucker. Tucker checked his watch. Let's head for Plymouth Rock. Hey, a word from the bird, said the fish counter. You're welcome. Chapter 19 the cooler wind swept off the bay and over the angled sea walls pointed rocks. Beyond the cars, diagonal to the parking meters, a line of people waited to board the Mayflower too, a small brown boat with dark masts against the autumn sky. Men dressed as pilgrims wore tall hats with buckles. Their shirts, breeches, and waistcoats with their cape and boots gave them the appearance of real pilgrims. Woman guides had bonnets and bolstered skirts. Other women moved near the portico in aprons with an outer gown and shoes. Looks like we went back 350 years, said Catherine. Tucker half grinned. Still, 40 years is a long time. Different cars and clothes. Old songs are on the radio. Technology is lacking. But one thing remains the same. What's that? Human beings. They're always the same. I suppose you're right, but what makes it so compelling to want to travel back in time? Tucker creased his brow and stared ahead for several seconds. I want to say it's all the things that are different, but it's more than that. It's like paddling a canoe down a mighty but familiar river. You enjoy the sights and sounds, the changes along the banks, but the big thing is knowing exactly what's coming. But having that power to change, that's intoxicating. She nodded. Or just the fact that things are different. It's another time and place. These people back here are just going about their business, working and raising kids, visiting Plymouth Rock. Fried food from the hot dog stands lingered in the crisp air. The hotel where she and Tucker stayed in the future, as well as the small shops along the opposite side of the road, had not yet been built. Taffy still sold in white boxes with cellophane, and shops along the waterfront added to the seaside atmosphere. 
Well, I finally got to see that pilgrim boat, said Catherine, but Tucker remained deep in thought as he panned over the bay. Are you listening to me, Tucker? Tucker continued to stare into the murky water. Yeah, I'm listening. I was just thinking how I'm going to bring that son of a bitch ridded down no matter how long it takes. She took his arm. Well, you've got 40 years to do it. No kidding. If we do, I wonder if we can go back through that wall. I'm afraid to even check. Well, I need to know if we're going to be stuck here. I miss my computer. Well, maybe they have Windows 58. She broke into a long laugh, laced with emotion she had contained for weeks. Bill Gates is probably writing code in his crib. Tucker lips smiled. Under the foliage and trim grass, the road slowly curved toward the granite portico. You were thinking about Billy and Shane back there, weren't you? If we talk to Mrs. Kerrigan, we can find out about Billy and Shane. He motioned her to a green-painted bench and they sat down. Not quite noon. Within the plethora of food aromas, Catherine expected a new compact car to come zooming down the street. The powerful chrome-trimmed vehicles of this era rolled by the seawall like giant tanks maneuvering in a battle. She exhaled and crossed her arms as she waited for Roz. A teenage boy with a flat-top crew cut, tight undershirt pulled up over his thin chest, shifted a shiny green Chevy truck into a nearby parking space. A smooth rendition of Twilight Time by the Platters leaked from the dash speaker. Tucker called over to him. Hey, who's your favorite, kid? Your favorite singer? Elvis. Elvis, good choice. And who else? I like Buddy Holly. Not quite the Beatles. You mean the Crickets. Buddy Holly and the Crickets, ma'am. Catherine smiled as he looked over at her. Whoops. Right, the Crickets. The song ended on a high note and a newscaster came on the air. Catherine grabbed Tucker's wrist as goosebumps spread up her arm. Ritter. Incredible. And now, Ron Bradley with the 5 o'clock news. Ron! Thank you, Jumping Jack, and a good afternoon to everyone. President Eisenhower's trip to Canada is being overshadowed by reports of the loss of yet another U.S. rocket. A Vanguard rocket second stage failed to ignite. Adding to the loss of the third U.S. satellite Explorer 3 in the atmosphere of last week, Adding to the loss of the third U.S. satellite, Explorer 3, in the atmosphere last week, officials are looking to Washington for control of the U.S. space program. An announcement is expected in two weeks, creating a civilian agency to promote space development. Sputnik 3 from the Soviet Union, Vanguard 1, Vanguard 1 and Explorer 1 are currently satellites now in orbit. Catherine watched the tourist at the Greystone Portico. Some families had bulky strollers. Little kids wore jeans, but men generally were dressed in slacks and women in light dresses. In political news, a new poll pits Vice President Nixon against
against former two-time Democratic candidate Adlai Stevenson. Nixon would win with 49% of the vote to 43 for Stevenson. But Nixon trails Massachusetts Senator John F. Kennedy 51 to 49%. Tucker shook himself from deep thought. Damn, I don't know how Sacalatita did it. What does this all mean, Catherine? Catherine pressed her lips. It means, Tucker, finding the truth. Ross backed out the red door of a faded brown and white taxi at the Plymouth Rock Monument. In a flowing green and white dress, she turned and danced toward Tucker and Catherine across the street from near the granite portico on the bay. It's party time! shouted Roz, and a few people at the monument turned. Roz, how did you... You wanted to know how I was able to take that taxi with no money? Well, well... Well, asked Tucker. I'll tell you, you have to know the right people. Tucker lifted up her wrist. You sold your aunt's bracelet. Roz, you didn't. Sure she did. Roz removed a wad of green bills. Eight grand, and this time is a lot of money, Tuck. Yeah, the bank of Roz, he replied. Even though Roz had solved the money problem, Catherine's increasing anxiety left her uneasy. Thoughts of Billy and Shane in the water below shook her as the tide sloshed over the irregular granite boulder, chiseled 1620. Tucker's powerful arm slowly surrounded her shoulder. We'll find the answers, Catherine. A little sandy-haired boy with a strange fur cap and a toy rifle ran by them. He lifted the rifle and pretended to fire at a jet plane, leaving a vapor trail across the harbor sky. Ross lifted up her hands. Whoa! Whoa! Pow! Pow! I think old Google Eyes is up there higher than you can shoot there, Davy Crockett, said his father. I can hit him, Dad, just like Josh Randall. Wanted dead or alive, said the father. He'll be wanted dead or alive if he runs around shooting people, said Roz. Come on, Bobby, he said, giving Roz a sneer as he crossed the street. Back here, Roz, no one had a problem with guns, said Tucker. All the kids had them. Oh, I feel better now, Tuck. Catherine stepped between them. Listen, I think Dan Jansen can help us find out what happened with Bud Kerrigan's car. Well, so can Bud's widow, said Roz. Catherine turned from the rock and placed her hands on the iron rail. Look at this place. All these old cars. They're all new now. So is Ritter, right here on WXBN, just like his bio said. We'll just send Davy Crockett there after Ritter with his rifle, said Roz. Tucker smiled in the low autumn light. Look, we know Maritokas tricked Bud Carrigan. That's where Catherine is right. We need Jansen. He can bring this, he can bring this thing forward legally. Well, we can't let Ritter and company know we're on to them, said Catherine. Sacalatia tapped into this whole thing, said Roz. Tucker took out his tipperillo box and lit his last tipperillo. Then he threw the box in the trash. We're here in 1958, either to save Shane and Billy or to make Ritter pay for what he did. Or both. Roz held her nose in the stuffy taxi air, somewhat squelched by a strawberry air refreshener, spent cigarettes in a dash ashtray, and the gray-haired driver's obnoxious cologne. The unshaven driver shifted up a winding tree-lined hill south of town. He had the bad habit of gnawing at the inside of his right cheek. Even Tucker grinned when Roz imitated the persistent chewing. Catherine shook her head, grinning as she slid back. Tucker informed them that the 55 Buick taxi had a huge engine. 
The seats were wide and smooth with a solid metal dash. The quirky driver played a crackly AM station that combined jazz and big band music. He tapped his fingers on the huge steering wheel. Roz imitated with a finger dance on the seat. Once again, Catherine coughed out several bursts of laughter. The driver's dark brown eyes appeared in the mirror, and then he resumed tapping. The brakes squealed and stopped the taxi abruptly at the two-story natural shingled house with spreading pines shading the scruffy front lawn. She looked at the black police cruiser parked under the oak branches in the dirt driveway to the left. Roz handed a silver certificate dollar bill to the driver. I love your drumming serenade. The driver winced as they moved inside. Roz made a hand gesture at the cab as he spun the tires in the dirt and fishtailed along the road shoulder. Catherine checked the screened-in porch and then turned to Tucker. We need to see exactly what Jansen knows at this point. Tucker nodded. Not as much as he will know. Or maybe we can just kind of nudge him along, said Roz. They opened a chain-link gate and moved up a cracked cement walk. The aluminum storm door opened and a young blonde woman in a yellow dress carried a baby out the porch's screen door. Her red and green apron hung loose on her waist. Are you Miss Jenner? I am. I'm Catherine Jenner, said Catherine as she shook the lady's rough hand. Pretty baby. She had a sing-song voice. She's three months old. Her name is Marjorie. Hello, Marjorie. This is my friend Roz and Mr. Tucker. I'm Susan Jansen. Please come in. They entered through the porch door. Green and white casual furniture and wicker chairs were aligned down the porch wall in front of the screens. She opened the inside aluminum door and directed them to the striped wallpaper in the side parlor. The house had a cedar smell. Danny is changing upstairs. Can I get you something to drink? Oh, I'm all set, thank you, said Tucker. Catherine studied the photos of an even younger Jansen in his cocky army uniform in World War II. Well, Danny will be right down. She brought the baby to a wooden crib in the living room and then, and then returned through a wide opening to the kitchen. She stirred one of the pots on the stove. The smell of onions drifted through the room. Steam rose from one of the stove pans and the radio played swing music in the background. A bulky TV with a set of rabbit ears filled the space between the two long windows with yellow shades pulled halfway down to the sill. The phone, similar to the dark rotary phone at the fish shanty, sat on the end table. Under a brass floor lamp with a taffeta shade, three glossy Raymond Chandler paperbacks were strewn over a Brockton Enterprise newspaper. Jansen's voice boomed out of the kitchen. Catherine's heartbeat accelerated with the same adrenaline rush she had before giving a speech. Wearing a blue jersey and white chinos, and only slightly older than the World War II picture, Jansen trotted through the open doorway. His slick dark hair had straight-edged sideburns. A row of white teeth filled his ready smile. His grip was firm. Dan Jansen! Catherine stared at his crisp, dark eyes. I'm John Tucker, and this is Catherine Jenner. Miss Jenner? He retained his smile as he looked back to Tucker. His voice, deep and strong, stunned Catherine. What can I do for you, Mr. Tucker? My wife said something about you two knowing Bud Kerrigan. Overwhelmed by Jansen's younger age and quicker movements, Catherine stepped forward. Well, I knew Bud. He wanted to sell me a house. Bud was a good guy. It's a damned, excuse me, Miss Jenna, it's a shame. Damn shame. Especially if somebody tampered with his car, said Catherine. Jansen's eyes opened wide. Why would you think that, young lady? Just strange that Bud would die in a car accident, said Catherine. Well, people do, said Jansen. 
What about Billy Ellis and Bud's niece Shane? She asked. The department has a missing persons report filed on both of them. What do you know about them? I heard they might have gone off to get married. Well, that is a possibility. Mrs. Jansen appeared in the kitchen doorway with a silver tray of assorted cookies. Please, have some cookies. Don't mind if I do, thank you, said Roz as she stepped over to the tray. Before Mrs. Jansen brought the tray to Tucker, Roz had already chewed through a chocolate chip cookie. Tucker grinned and took a few cookies on a white napkin. Catherine thanked Mrs. Jansen as she also sampled the cookies. I know, Shane, she said. Problem is, I can't find her. Well, maybe they did go off and get married, said Jansen. But I also know they were very curious about Bud's death. Catherine stroked her chin. Was Bud's 88 tampered with, you know, so he'd go off the road? Funny you should mention that. I just talked to Billy last Thursday, and he was going up to Sid Horowitz's yard to take a look at Bud's car. I'm going up there as soon as I can. Sid Horowitz? asked Tucker. Right, the junkyard dealer. Anybody who needs parts goes and sees Sid. What do you think is going on here, Mr. Jansen? asked Ross. Well, the chief had me working round the clock just doing my job, and with Bud's funeral, I really haven't had time to look into this like I want to. I do think this. Betty Rowland told me she served Bud his usual two glasses of wine at the wayside, and that was it. Bud wouldn't drive off the road after only two glasses of wine. No, he would not, said Catherine. Did anybody check the parking lot? asked Tucker. You know, strangers out there. Well, that's a good point. That's where somebody would have the opportunity to play around with Bud's car. Jansen reached over and pulled out a blue wire rim notebook and pencil off the table near the Chandler paperback. He flipped it open and wrote something inside. I'll make it a point to check that. Thank you. Did you know about Capitol Hill? asked Catherine. Sure. Shane said Bud told her something in confidence. Bud's partner. Ah, Dimitri Maritokas. That guy is one fast talker, said Jansen. Catherine stepped forward. Maritokas had Bud put up 80 grand for a project. Tract homes on the west side of town in the hills. Oh, come on. Where'd you hear that? I just wonder where the 80 grand went. Jansen wrote down what she said. 80 grand? Where is Maritokas? asked Catherine. Well, he was at the funeral and at Bud's office. You're saying that Shane told you Maritokas took Bud for 80 grand? Yes. Oh, those are serious charges. That's important, young lady, very important. And where the devil is Shane? This is getting out of hand. He looked as if he wanted to make a point, but she motioned him off. Saying anything about the shooting or the dumping of the bodies in the harbor would require explanations she could not provide. Mrs. Jansen leaned into the parlor. Danny, would you stop the grill? The new fluid is under the porch. I have the matches. Would you people like to stay for supper? Oh, no, that's not necessary, said Catherine. Cookies were great. Well, we have plenty of burgers. He headed back into the kitchen and kissed his wife as he passed. We have to be extremely careful. If we provide Jansen with too much information without anything to back it up, he's going to get suspicious. Catherine squinted. Exactly. We need to take what we know and prove it. Ross held her arm and spoke in a lower voice. I say we start with finding witnesses to Ritter's shooting Shane and Billy. Catherine peered out the two large window panes. The afternoon light dabbed patches across the foliage and into the harbor beyond. Her eyes filled with tears. The bodies are right out there. Well, what about Maritokas? asked Tucker. He must have records of what he did with that scam. I mean, you know, his own personal notes. He lives in North Plymouth, yet he was away for periods of time. Tucker spoke quickly. What if somebody did cut the brake line? We need to find that out. 
I don't know, answered Catherine. Jansen trotted across the kitchen and returned into the room. I'll walk you guys to your car. We came in that green and white taxi, said Roz, with the lead drummer for Elvis driving the car. Jansen's youthfulness contrasted vigorously to the old man dancing at the sea view. As they headed out front, Catherine caught sight of a municipal fire station photo on a September 1958 calendar tacked onto the porch's shingles. An evening breeze crept through the back door. Jansen opened up the door and brought them outside. My friend Butchie drives a taxi. No drums. Ross pretended to drum. Ba-boom! I'll give him a bell if you want. You mean call him? Yes, we'd appreciate it, said Catherine as they reached the front walk. Another jet vapor trail crossed the blue sky and faded to the west. Hey, look, Tuck. Another sky rider. Our boys have to keep watch for the Reds, said Jansen. The Reds? asked Catherine. The Ruskies. Khrushchev would bomb Plymouth Rock if he could. Jansen pressed his lips and thought for a few seconds. If I get time, I'm going to head over to Sid Horowitz's in Carver on my day off. Give me a call on Monday morning. Sounds like a good idea, and we'll get to the bottom of this. I just think if Billy and Shane ran off together, they would have called by now. What about Maritokas? asked Tucker. We might want to talk to him at the office or at his place in North Plymouth. Jansen nodded. Well, I don't want to accuse him of anything. Let me handle that. If he pulled any hanky-panky with Bud, I have to substantiate it. Thanks for the lead, though. Catherine wondered if Sid Horowitz, who in the future died of a stroke in the nursing home, would now cooperate. Something backfired across the street, and everyone except Jansen leaped up. A greasy, dark-haired man in a black leather jacket and jeans maneuvered a motorcycle up the hill. His beady eyes scanned them as he passed and accelerated. Ha! I thought I heard guns, said Catherine. Nah, dumb bike. You're just like Eleanor Krull. Eleanor claimed that she heard shots the other night. I told her it was just a backfiring car. When did she think she heard shots? asked Catherine. It was Saturday because I had Sunday off. Maybe she did hear shots. Oh, Eleanor is a crackpot. Look, call me at the station on Monday and we'll go see Sid. Then thanks for coming by. I needed someone to kick me in the fanny to find out what happened to Bud. Tucker shook his hand. I just hope it's still possible to find out. Chapter 20 The apartment's knotty pine walls resembled a wooded cabin. Yet they were less than half a mile from the portico. Outside, Tucker hovered over the new red Plymouth Belvedere's engine. Catherine stood near the paneled bathroom door. Come on, Roz, if we're going to that cemetery and meet Jansen, we have to get moving. Please! The car hood snapped into place outside. Tucker opened the apartment door and warm air followed him inside. What's the holdup? Oh, Roz is still in the bathroom. Don't you start, Tark, she said behind the door. How are you doing, Catherine? A repeated excited feeling spread across her stomach. Just a little scared, I guess. Tucker crossed the braided rug and held her shoulders. They have no idea who we are and why we're here. This is 1958. I suppose you're right, but I just have a strange feeling that once we start snooping around Sid's junkyard, we'll get caught. He shrugged his shoulders. Sid won't know, Catherine. The bathroom door crashed against the wainscoting, and Roz emerged in a gray sweatshirt and white pants that extended below the knee. Her pink sunglasses were propped on her red, white, and blue kerchief. Heidi ho everyone! Here she comes, Marilyn Monroe in tights, said Tucker. 
Clam digger pants talking. Let me tell you, I ain't no Madeline Monroe. Marilyn. Marilyn, Mabel, Lula Bell, who cares? How's the Belvedere checking out? She asked, looking out the window. Fine, if you like convertibles. This weather will let us enjoy the open air. Roz tightened her mouth but didn't say anything. But to answer your question, the engine is clean. At 15,000, it should be. Nice white walls, but I ain't used to them fins sticking out of the back like some shark. Catherine's afraid we might be found out back here, said Roz, but I trust Jansen. Catherine adjusted Roz's kerchief. We need to lead him in the right direction. Yeah, then Jansen will run with it. I'm confident of that, said Tucker, opening the door for them. Oh, I get it. I get it. You want to drive, Roz? asked Catherine. Tucker creased his brow. Well, she did pay cash for it. No argument from me, said Tucker. Just the shifting. Roz put her hands on her hips. Please. Tucker laughed as they moved into the warmer fall air. Hell, they don't even have seat belts in these things. Roz lowered the sunglasses and tightened her kerchief. I'll show you, wise guy. Black squiggly inserts punctuated the red vinyl bench seat, and the cream-colored roof cover boarded the rear seat. A matching red plastic steering wheel extended from a gray metal dash. Her Toyota, 40 years from now in Ohio, had no chrome. She motioned Tucker to the rear seat. Ross plopped herself behind the wheel. Catherine flipped back the passenger side seat and then sat in front. Ross inserted the key and started the engine. Purring like a kitten, Tucker removed his hat and straightened his wavy brown hair. Ross looked in the mirror. Good move, Tuck. Catherine, you want a kerchief? How fast are you going to go, Ross? Depends if she can get it out of first gear, said Tucker. Ross shifted and they went flying backward 20 feet. Ride em, cowboy. Ha ha. Where are we going, asked Ross. Catherine leaned toward her. Just head down Route 44. Yes, ma'am, she said, saluting. Ross shifted again, worked the clutch, and steered the red convertible down the hill toward town. The sun caught Tucker's crisp blue eyes and beard stubble as the branch leaves passed overhead. Catherine turned and shouted, How's it feel to not be born yet, Tucker? Roz shifted again. There! Out of second gear! Take that, Tuck! Tucker smiled and leaned forward. I can't even believe we're back here. It's real. Sakalatita did it, and I don't know how. He nodded as the wind furrowed his hair. Let me reiterate, if we can let sit on to what we're doing, find out about Bud's car on our own, then we can get the hell out of here, I think. Right. Catherine thought back to last night and how they sat next to the table radio and listened to the clear voice of Conrad Ritter take phone calls on his late-night radio show. Ritter was so damn convincing last night, even at that young age. Did you notice when the guy tried to talk about the missing persons report? Right, all of a sudden it was time to take a break. Ritter, what a creep. Roz shifted out of traffic light and then hit the brake hard. Tucker pushed against the front seat and Catherine fell forward. Oh, you guys all right? Tucker pretended to hold his jaw. Other than the missing tooth. Oh, God, shouted Roz. She looked in the mirror. Stop it. Catherine leaned back to Tucker again. She pointed to the houses near the portico. What about that backfire lady? Eleanor Crowell. Sounds like she might have been a witness to Ritter's shots at the portico. Well, we'll talk to her. 
Ross twisted the volume on the radio and the convertible speaker regurgitated the strange lyrics from the Purple People Eater. Catherine grinned. What is that, Roz? The Purple People Eater. This was an oldie song, but the thing just came out. I heard yakety yak, but I didn't turn it up. Yakety yak. Don't come back, said Tucker. See, he knows, he knows. Roz shifted the car again, and they backtracked to Route 44. She began an off-key rendition of the Purple People Eater. Catherine smiled, and Tucker shook his head, laughing. To his right, the old-style gas pumps were tall and narrow, and the attendants raced to pump gas and service customers. One of the men in a white uniform swiped a squeegee quickly over the rear window of a green Chevy with a metal visor over a clear windshield. A white clapboard house with wood shutters preceded the pizza palace 40 years in the future. With a subtle smile, Catherine found herself becoming accustomed to the large finned cars weighted down with metal at the traffic light. The light turned green. Roz shifted and smoothly brought the Belvedere up the hill. Things were not too different along the side streets. The cemetery covered the hill to the left, and Route 44 went under a smaller concrete bridge. Take a left, Roz. In the cemetery? You know I hate cemeteries, Catherine Marie. There's ghosts in the cemeteries. That's why I didn't tell you, said Catherine. Roz winced, downshifted, and signaled. Creepy place. Man, when I die, bury me next to Wild Bill, said Tucker. Who's Wild Bill? Wild Bill Hickok. That's what Calamity Jane said. Bury me next to Wild Bill. Well, hell's bells. You can bury me next to Wild Bill, too. Catherine leaned forward. Look how much smaller the trees are here. And there's some bigger, older ones that were gone in the future. I'll have to fly you up to South Dakota, Roz, and put you next to Wild Bill, said Tucker. Well, then bury me next to Santa Claus. As Roz drove up the narrow road, Tucker laughed as hard as he had since Catherine had met him. Catherine directed Roz to the top of the hill. The short green grass framed the mound over Bud Kerrigan's newly dug grave, and a wide variety of flowers, highlighted with wilted roses, covered the fresh dirt. A brass marker stood upright in the soil. Arnold Bud Kerrigan, May 31st, 1903 to September 7th, 1958. Tucker leaned on the doorframe. It's been in the ground less than a week. We have to find the truth. Tucker's eyes intensified and his teeth crunched when he spoke. Man didn't deserve this fate. Crossed the grass and through the trees, a light red pickup stopped near the chain link fence. You okay, Roz? asked Catherine. Yeah, I'm just peachy. Where's Wild Bill? Tucker wiped his hand over his mouth. Okay, let's go. Stripped of the gas stations and shopping plazas, Route 44 retained a strikingly rural character. The water tower, painted pale green, popped up amidst the scrub oaks and pines on the surrounding hills. A profound sense of simplicity before the massive influx of people and changes was evident as Roz drove along the open highway's broken white lines. The five-way intersection's future traffic signals now only had faded red stop signs. Catherine smiled as the oncoming air currents hit her face. They drove up a long hill, bordered by spreading farm fields and tall farm silos. Where the hill leveled, fields were plowed and corn rows lined the hill to the wood pole connecting the electrical lines. A couple of barns were positioned behind the white clapboard farmhouse. Men in denim overalls moved about the yard and another man bounced on a glossy red tractor across a distant hill. Cows! said Tucker, pointing at the numerous Holsteins 
grazing in the sunlight in the grassy area to the right. As Catherine turned, she noticed the faded red pickup truck from the cemetery followed them down the highway. Roz modulated her voice and sounded like a disgruntled cow. Mmm. Tucker, Tucker, the truck, said Catherine. Tucker raised his left brow. I ain't gonna turn. I'm assuming now that they're aware we're on to them. What do you want me to do, Tuck? asked Roz in the mirror. Get a map from the glove compartment, Catherine, without turning, hand it to me. A few seconds later, Tucker had the map in his hands. He quickly folded it over his knee. Roz, take the next left and then head south. Are you sure? Just do as I say. We're going into the state reservation and lose this fool, whoever he is, between the ponds and the pines. Roz signaled and veered left. She looked in the mirror. He's following us, Tuck. I understand that. Tucker traced his finger along the map. Another couple of miles and then we'll enter the wooded area. Once we lose this jackass, we'll loop back to the junkyard. Roz looked over her shoulder from a sandy beach and clear pond surrounded by pines and a few scrub oak trees. Back at the undulating main road, Tucker had instructed her to turn down a dirt road into the woods. That road led to several brown painted camp buildings near the pond. For 15 minutes they waited by the beach said Catherine. I think we've lost him, said Catherine. Tucker produced a sly grin. Well, good driving there, Ross. Me and my baby Belvedere, she said, slapping the door. Let's do this, people. We need to get to Route 53 and then loop back to 44. We'll get to Sid's junkyard from the west. Catherine turned as Ross started the car. Who was that in the truck, Tucker? Don't matter. What matters is Ritter and Meritokas are aware we're after them. I didn't want that truck to know he was tailing us. Getting his tag would have been smart. We could have given it to Jansen. I understand. Tucker nodded as they reached the main road through the reservation. Take a right and follow this road back to Route 44 and Bud Kerrigan's car in the junkyard. Chapter 21 Route 44 cut into a wooded section between the two towns. The track developments were not yet built. A multitude of wires were strewn between the weathered gray telephone poles and through the tree branches and eventually crossed over the cranberry bogs. A few feet away, groups of workers marched across the earthen dikes above the irrigated bogs. She looked ahead for the Horowitz sign, seen only in her dreams. Well, I hope we find Bud's car without raising any more suspicions. Remember, the Sid of 1958 doesn't know who we are, said Tucker. Reality mirrored Catherine's dream when the salvage yard's hanging sign appeared at the edge of the maples. She raised her hands to her mouth. The yellow letters were stark against the blue background. Down the dirt road, rows of abandoned cars were heaped over the grassy hills into the pine grove forest. Ross shifted the Belvedere onto the entry road. Shane and Billy were up here less than a week ago, and now they're dead. Ross shifted into second gear and navigated over the wide potholes. In the clearing, she coasted to a stop next to a dented blue and green Chevy parked in front of a tar paper and wood shack. As several Dobermans barked at the chicken wire window, she shut off the engine. Is this the place, Catherine Marie? asked Roz, looking at Catherine. Catherine lowered her hands from her mouth. Exactly. Tucker nodded. Damn scary is what it is. The wood-boarded door swung open. The beady-eyed Sid Horowitz, 
His hair, short and dark, emerged in the daylight. Thin and lean in his t-shirt, Sid bore a little resemblance to the pale, elderly man in the nursing home. His dark and blue and red mermaid tattoo was displayed crisply on his tight bicep. What can I do for you? He asked as he approached the Belvedere. You Horowitz? Yeah, just call me Sid. You looking for a car or just parts? I'm not sure. What do you have in 52 Fords? Yeah, well, well, we got 52s, and you can check out the 50s and the 51s. Ross caught his eye. And how are you doing there, Dolly? Ross looked over his sunglasses. I'm not your Dolly. I just asked how you were doing there, sweetie. Just wonderful, Sydney. I love spending my afternoons in a junkyard. Say no junkyard, it's an auto salvage. Right, she said, panning the rows of dismantled cars. The vibrancy in Sid's gait and speech surprised Catherine. He spun around to Tucker, but kept glancing at Roz. Well, you look around here, Daddy-O. You need any tools, you just call me. Just go up into the yard and find what you need. Then he whispered to Catherine, Your girlfriend is cute. He smiled at Roz and stared at her. What are you looking at? What are you doing Saturday night, baby? You don't waste any time, do you? I can't even think past tomorrow there, Big Sid. A smile came to Sid's face as Catherine crossed her arms and scanned back to the wooded hill. She wondered about Bud's 88. Tucker, you want to look around? Good idea. You got any cars that require just a little work? Asked Tucker. Sid seemed to be taken with Roz. What's your name there, sweetheart? Little Bo Peep said Roz as she opened the door. Come on, guys, let's take a look around. Ah, playing hard to get, said Sid as he looked over Roz from top to bottom. Okay, I can work with that. Hard to get? Yeah, real hard to get. One of the dogs wiggled out the door. His teeth were bared as he headed toward the Belvedere. Tiger, halt, yelled Sid. Roz grabbed Catherine. That dog is a killer. Tiger does what I tell him, just like my woman. Yeah, I bet they bear their teeth too, said Roz. Sid grabbed Tiger by the black leather collar. He dragged the dog forward, kicked open the door, and pushed the dog back inside. Tucker led Roz and Catherine away from the shack. They walked past a plethora of cars, dented and plopped up in the woods. Catherine elbowed Roz. I think he kind of goes for you, Roz. The dog or Sid? Sid! Oh, be still my heart! Catherine checked the spread of cars. I'm sure Bud's car was up this hill in the dream. I remember Shane and Billy climbing this very hill. Well, let's check it out, said Tucker, glancing at Roz. I think he does go for you there, Roz. Will you guys cut it out? This guy is shopping for one thing, and I'm going out of business. Well, he seems like a nice guy, said Catherine, giggling. Oh, yeah, real nice. If I were that dog, I'd bite his head off. Catherine continued laughing. You should date him, Roz. I'll date Tiger before I date Sid. Tucker raised his index finger under the pines. You know, we might be able to use a date to our advantage. I'm not going out with Sid. I won't do it. He's creepy. You might be able to find out what we need to know. I'm not listening, said Ross, speed walking ahead of them up to the car line trail. Catherine hiked up the incline, paralleling the abandoned cars along the woods. She looked at Tucker's chiseled face. The crow's peaks compressed as he remained in deep thought. She tapped his arm. I can see why Jansen never solved it, Tucker. Without Bud's car, Ritter and the boys were home free. Sure, he didn't know what we know. 
Well, they hid it too well, and I bet no one ever fully investigated the reports of shots near the rock. Tucker shook his head as he spoke. Maritokas and Rizzo. They deep-sixed the bodies before anyone knew Shane and Billy were gone. I'll bet money Rizzo was driving that pickup truck. When they reached the top of the hill, Catherine stepped into the empty space between a rusted wood truck bed and a smashed white Buick. She scrambled back to Roz and Tucker. This was the space, I'm sure of it. I knew it. Tucker knelt down and ran his fingers along the tire tracks, the grass, and the dirt. It hasn't been out of here long, no sir. But where did they bring it? asked Catherine. Jansen would have no way of knowing that in the future, and old Sid would never tell him. Sid was and will be a pain in the ass, said Roz near the truck. Yeah, said Tucker, standing. He is a pain in the ass, all right. I'll bet my bottom dollar he knows where Bud's 88 went. You think he knows Rizzo? asked Catherine. Who knows? Tucker looked down the slope toward the shack. Roz, you need to go out with Sid. Forget it. You can pump him for information. I beg your pardon. Roz, he, Roz, he likes you, said Catherine, grinning. Roz covered her ears. I'm not listening, Catherine Marie. Catherine put her hand on Roz's shoulder and tried not to laugh. What's the worst that could happen? Oh, I know the worst that could happen. They started back toward the shack. Tucker spoke to Roz without turning. Roz, all we need to know is the answer to one question. What did they do with Bud's 88? I told you guys I'm not listening. Ask him now. We ask him now, and he runs to Maritokas, and they come after us. He, we already had that truck tailing us. Tucker stopped and turned. Roz, you can do it. Roz parroted the words from the purple people leader as she meandered between the wreck. Dogs barked in a chain-link pen out front. Sid held a wrench and a greasy metal part in his hand as he spoke with three young guys in front of a stripped Ford. His head snapped back toward Roz. What do you say, beautiful? You want to go to the drive-in tomorrow night? We'll see the blob. The what? asked Roz. Sid used his hands as he spoke. The blob! See, this blob comes in on a meteor and starts spreading everywhere. Eats up a diner. Where have you been? So, you want me to go out with you tomorrow night and watch a movie about a blob of something eating a diner? Yeah, what do you say? We'll uh, double date, Sid, said Tucker. Roz put her hands on her hips. Tuck! Sid crunched his nose. Yeah, what the hell? You didn't find what you were looking for. We'll have to look again when we have more time, said Catherine. What exactly were you looking for? Parts, body parts, said Roz. Sid laughed. I like you, chipmunk. Wonderful. Where do we pick you up, asked Tucker. Meet me on 44 near town, Grove Street, number 16, second floor. Make it 7.30. They don't start the show until it gets dark. He raised his brows to Roz and moved his fingers quickly. Bye, chipmunk. I'll be seeing you. The pleasure is all yours, said Roz, but Sid laughed. <laughs> You're funny. I'm just a laugh a minute, Sid, said Roz as she started back to the Belvedere. We'll see you tomorrow, said Tucker, 7.30. Roz started the car and shook her head. You guys, Sid and me and the blob. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. She shifted the car, turned around, and rumbled along the dirt road. In the mirror, Sid moved his fingers in that cute little wave. Oh, God in heaven, help us! Heavenly shades of night are falling. It's twilight time. Out of 
Just a hint, Twilight Time was released in April of 1958. For Catherine, Roz, and Tucker, the table has been set. They know what happened and who did it. They have been transformed by Sackleteer into a new, frightening situation. But an arena, if they survive, where justice may be rendered. Allow me, if you will, to escort you back to the 1950s, where gradually Dimitri and company realize Roz, Tucker, and Catherine are well aware of Conrad Ritter's shooting of Billy and Shane. I'm Fitton, these are my books, and I will return next Saturday night with episode 5 of The Butterfly in the Deadly Storm. My books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.